This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. When we have Canadians unable to access government agencies for OAS, CRA, immigration, you know, families broken up, and to find out that a lot are sitting at home, there's no plan to get people back to work, and we don't even know for sure how many are at home not working, not providing services to Canadians. It's, it's quite worrying. That's Edmonton West MP Kelly McCauley speaking with our Jill Bennett. And the concern here is that there are a lot of federal employees who have racked up, well, it sounds like well over half a billion dollars in paid leave over about three months. So besides the fact that there's an awful lot of people out there who don't have the luxury of paid leave, we still don't know how much this is actually costing taxpayers and what the reasons are behind this. For more on this, we're joined now by Mike LeCouture, who's our global national parliamentary correspondent. Mike, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So what qualifies as paid leave? Why so many employees off? Yeah, so there's a special leave. It's called, it's known by its pay code called 699. And essentially it's leave, uh, that's not related to sickness or vacation. So if they can't work for reasons beyond their control. So, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic was one of those examples. Uh, and one of the issues that also comes up is whether or not they are in quarantine, whether or not it is actually because they are sick, sick because of COVID-19 or if they don't have the technology at home. Keep in mind, in mid-March, uh, when all of this happened, um, hundreds uh, of thousands of, of civil servants were told, stay at home um, because, you know, you can't come to work and we don't know how long this is going to be. Mm-hmm. Getting people, laptops, um, you know, work phones and the such, uh, making sure people were set up. I can tell you from experience uh, with friends that work in the public service, that is still a struggle. Now, I'm not for a second trying to excuse, uh, you know, some of this leave because obviously the number uh, does have a, cer- a certain level of sticker shock to it uh, with, you know, possibly as much as $623 million um, that the parliamentary budget officer thinks may have been spent on this kind of leave. Um, but the fact is, is that there were a number of people that could not do some work. Uh, now, when we asked the government, we said, you know, what about this number? What is going on? Um, and they said, look, yes, at the peak, this is unfortunately what happened. But since mid-March, you know, less than a third uh, of the public service did require that kind of leave. And it's really been curtailing down, of course, as they've been able to either get technology to people or be able to have a lot of these civil servants come back to work. One stat I thought was interesting is that they said, on average, employees took 50 hours of paid leave using the code 699. Sounds like a lot, but when you consider, you know, when you do the math, it's it's actually only about a week. That's still a week that a lot of us did not have the luxury uh, of of taking. Um, but when we spoke to the union representing um, a lot of these employees, they also said, "Look, you have to understand that um, these people were trying to do their work. They wanted to do their work from home, right. but they just couldn't." Um, and, and there has been a complaint from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation saying, you know, people in the, in the private sector haven't been able to, to do this. They're, they have, they don't have this kind of paid leave. And actually one union president said to me, well, you know, what do you call the CERB or the, um, the, the wage <laughs> subsidy? You know, that was something that was a massive program that would use federal money to right. help people stay at home. I wonder though, you make an excellent point there, Mike, in that what would the cost have been to make sure that every single one of those employees had a laptop computer, right? To go home and do their work because I'm sure that also would have been very expensive. Exactly. And it's not just uh, the simple fact of sending home a laptop or a phone. Consider that, uh, you know, the wide majority of these employees that availed themselves to this leave were from the Canada Revenue Agency, um, about 70% of them. So you figure, oh my God, that's, that's a lot for one department. Consider what 
employees the from the, the security. CRA yeah. have to deal. Exactly. So they have to make sure that they are working on laptops that are fully secure because they are dealing with mine and yours, uh, you know, social insurance numbers and uh, sensitive information. Uh, so that's another consideration that had to be made and that uh, governments had to, you know, take in, into, into, into account. Also, Let's, uh, you know, I, I don't have the numbers sitting right in front of me here, but, you know, Global Affairs Canada, uh, was not high on the list, but if Global Affairs Canada employees are home as well, they've got sensitive information right. that they have to deal with as well. So look, it, either way, this is a lot of money in terms of leave. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is also a global pandemic that I don't think a lot of people expected either. Oh, so true. Mike, thank you. Thanks for having me. Mike LeCouture, our global national parliamentary correspondent, talking about those numbers you have undoubtedly heard in the news. Something like half a billion dollars and counting in federal employees getting some paid leave over the past three months. There's more to come on that story for sure, because there's still lots of questions about the amount of money involved here. This is Mornings with Simi. Last week, all eyes were focused on the protests in Portland, and it was supposed to be the end of protests. That's why the president said he was sending in federal law enforcement officers, except that's not the way it worked out. Now we're talking about all the unrest that happened in Seattle over the weekend, where once again, police are saying a riot actually took place. So what is going on? Joining us now for more on this once again is CBS law enforcement and security analyst Paul Violas. Good morning, Paul. Hey, good morning, Simi. Hope you had a nice weekend. I did. Thank you. So what now? Last week when we talked, it was about Portland. Now it's in Seattle. Nothing seems to have ended here. Simi, first of all, I love talking with you. We have to try to find a subject that's always not so grim. But uh, we're we're looking at Seattle today, and, and we have 59 officers that have been significantly injured during the course of this riot. And we look at the totality of what's going on. Now, if I'm sitting in Vancouver, I'm scratching my head saying, what in God's earth is wrong with these people, right? Well, one word, Simi, and I can tell you this unequivocally after 40 years of government service, we have seen a drastic change in this country, in the United States, and it's, we've moved to this sense of entitlement. And I can only hope and pray that you never see that where you are, because that is exactly what you're seeing in Seattle. But Paul, let me, I'm sure people yes, thought this in the late 1960s and early 1970s with the Vietnam War protests as well. Those, it sounds like the exact same complaints that you know, people had about the protests that were going on at that time. And clearly right. the approach isn't working because what they did in Portland didn't work. It's spreading. It's actually getting worse. Well, you know, the thing is, though, we, we have to look at each city for what's going on. In Portland, the use of federal officers in Portland was to protect the U.S. courthouse. That's it. They're not patrolling the streets. They're, they're, the only jurisdiction they have is that. So that's, that's the only thing. That, that's what really is centered in Portland. In Seattle, remember, Simi, this was, this was precipitated by the, the allowing of the police department to be shut down and, and, you know, just abandoned. And for people to occupy an entire area of public property and there's that sense of entitlement that breeds and breeds and breeds that we're seeing in Seattle that is going to continue to grow and now festering with more and more violence, as we even saw, not just in Seattle, but you know, in Austin, we have you know, a man dead now, uh, eight shots fired in under a minute, and three guns used. Uh, unfortunately, we are not gaining control the way we should in the cities, and unfortunately, the wrong people you know, are, are getting control. Right. But when we talked last week, we were talking about the federal law enforcement issue and right. how that was antagonizing things. That clearly hasn't worked, Paul, by sending in, no. you know, federal law enforcement. So so what how do you make this work? Well, unfortunately, Simi, the answer is not going to be one that most people want to hear. And what we have right now is going to require more use of force from police to physically take back control of the areas that are not in control. And if that means bringing in National Guard, then you'll probably see it. Uh, But at the end of the day, we can't sustain this kind of action much longer. So you're going to see, and you don't have to read the tea leaves on this one, Sammy, you're going to see more use of force coming from law enforcement in the days and weeks to come to take some of these cities back. Right, but isn't that then really up to the individual governors? Isn't this about the individual states here doing that? They have to make that call. 100%. It starts with the municipalities in the city of Seattle. 
The city of Seattle's mayor has the responsibility, the legal duty to protect its human, physical, and financial assets. If they fail to do that, which clearly they have, then it's up to the state's governor to then come in as the state's CEO to come in and use whatever force necessary they deem is appropriate relative to state police or National Guard to take control. If they fail to do that, then that would put the, the president in a position to decide whether or not he's going to declare martial law in Seattle or other cities. And that's that's the chain of events that we're looking at. Doesn't this seem, though, like, you know, if you're a student of history, and I'm sure you are, Paul, you look mm-hmm. back and you yes, think ma'am. those the riots and the protests and the demonstrations that happened in those late 60s and early 70s, doesn't this seem similar to you? It seems similar to me. And once again, you, you know, you're entirely on point with respect to the content of the protest. I mean, listen, in the 60s and 70s, folks were protesting about the same things they're protesting about today. You were absolutely right. But they were different people 40, 50, 60 years ago. Today. Yeah, it's the people who are complaining it, about it now or the people who are protesting back then. Well, think about it. I mean, now the people that, that are complaining aren't just the ones. They're not, they're not the ones that are rioting. The people that are complaining genuinely have a point, and they need to express that. The protesters are not the rioters. The rioters are different people that are taking advantage. They're opportunistic criminals. They're taking advantage to destroy public property. But that's not what's they happening even, in Portland, Paul. Yeah. We saw the wall of moms, yeah. the wall of dads, the wall of military no. vets who showed up on the weekend. I completely get that. But we, that, this is precipitated, again, Sammy, from the fact that we just don't have control. And you simply can't do that in any environment, in any municipality. That's where we're at right now. And we're putting ourselves to a corner, backing ourselves in, where the, what the optics you're going to see in the days and weeks to come are going to be things that people never thought they were going to see in the United States. And I truly believe that's going to ha- it, it's going to happen. I think it's inevitable the way things are going right oh, now. Oh, I think those of us outside the U.S. already think that with what we see happening in the U.S. But, Paul, thank you. Entirely my pleasure, Simi. That is Paul Vailis, who's a law enforcement and security analyst uh, for CBS News, talking about what the protests that happened in Seattle now as well over the weekend. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk about going away for the weekend. So many people try to do that. And if they're using BC ferries, it's becoming a bit complicated and stressful. I shouldn't even say a bit. I think it is complicated and stressful. For more on that, we're joined now by our Nikki Reitmeyer. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, long lineups for people who want to board a BC ferry. For some people, it's easy to get on board. For others, they're finding themselves in that same lineup waiting 8, 12 hours going, what the heck is going on here? I'm seeing other vehicles passing me. They're getting on. It's like when you're, okay, you know when you're at a restaurant and you sit down and then the table Classic. next to you, they, they, they come in after you. Yeah. But they get their food first Oh, somehow. I hate that. Yes. And you go, wait a minute. I've been here longer. We ordered first. They got their food first. How does this work? Basically, the same thing is going on right now with the BC ferries. Super frustrating. Yeah, I've been reading about this too, and I don't blame people for being mad because uh, how can so many people be residents of the islands? Well, I think this is really where the problem lies is they're not checking properly. So this resident priority loading policy essentially means that residents of the vessel's destination are going to get first crack at boarding the boat, along with people who have also made reservations. So this policy was enacted back in March, but it's only really been implemented since June, and we've only really been seeing the effects of it since ferry traffic has rebounded recently. So they're not checking everyone's ID. They're basically just taking your word for it that, you know, you show up and say, hey, I'm a resident. So, you know, I'd like to get this preferred boarding. Yeah, essentially, they said, you know, we don't have the manpower. We're not really in, you know, uh, we're not enforcing this yet. Deborah Marshall said uh, that they have a zero tolerance policy for verbal physical abuse of workers, but they advise travelers to secure a reservation to ensure they get to their destination. They said, yeah, that essentially they are, they aren't the ones policing this. I have a question then. So they're, they're claiming they can't police all this, but you open your wallet to give them the credit card to pay for your (laughs) reservation. So what, at the same time, you can't also take out the driver's license to show where you live. Like, I don't understand that. Well, they say that it's possible that some people will have second properties at these locations, thus the address that is on their driver's license. 
doesn't reflect the fact that they are technically residents of this other area as well, since they own a property wherever this other property is. So there's that loophole that could be causing some issues. But yeah, I think that generally, you know, checking someone's ID would certainly help you sort out some of these people. Yes. Uh, We also tried to talk to BC Ferries about that this morning, and they said they are not available. But are they going to be expand? Like, look, I guess the question is, are they going to be expanding the schedule anytime soon? Because clearly people are chafing up against the schedule that's available right now. Well, I don't know why change what was already working fine to begin with, because the schedule as it had existed was uh, functional and it seemed to be working okay. This resident's first policy, though, seems to be throwing a wrench into something that was working fine previously. So will they change the schedule or will they just change this policy? I imagine, I would hope they would just alter the policy in order to make it work a little bit better. But yeah, as you mentioned, we aren't um, speaking to BC Ferries this morning as they said that they could, weren't able to come on the show. However, we will be speaking to a representative for BC Ferries and Marine Workers Union at 6.50 this morning. So we'll see what they have to say about this. I guess it's all about social distancing. Can't just put on more ferry sailings or expand because you've got to make sure people are staying distanced. Mm, That's yeah, probably the problem, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We'll Crazy. see. I know. I just, I just I just think of myself being in that eight-hour lineup waiting oh, for a BC to ferry it. pulling my hair out. I, I think I would just start swimming. I, you know what? I'll see you guys on the other side. <laughs> hire a boat. Hire a boat. I know we can laugh about it because we're not in there, but I've heard those stories too where I just go... I have a tremendous amount of sympathy. And that you're right, that would drive you crazy watching other people drive by and just like get on, right? Well, they were saying that there was someone who was so upset that they actually laid down in front of traffic and, and, and said, oh, you know, no one else is getting onto this point. I don't blame I get them. an explanation as to what's <laughs> happening here. Like, I don't blame them. So they've been there guys, eight hours. I, think- I don't blame them. Oh, I think the policy needs to be changed. If it's getting to the point where people are laying down in traffic out of frustration, I think there's a problem with the policy. I would agree with you on that one, too. And I wanted to ask you this, Nikki. I was, we were talking to Emily about it earlier. What's the policy like at your local grocery store for like you know fighting COVID-19? Is, is it wear masks? Do they have the arrows on the store floor or anything like that? Yeah, but it's, you know, there's no enforcement of anything. I mean, you certainly see arrows on the floor. I think that you see those everywhere. I myself admittedly violate those arrows because, you know, you need to pop down an aisle and all of a sudden you go, ah, shoot, the arrows are pointing in the wrong direction. But they have the arrows. Uh, There's no enforcement of masks or Hmm. no policy that people need to wear masks. It seems to be maybe 60% of people I see wearing masks, 40% not at the grocery store I tend to go to. Yeah. How about you? Is there a strict policy? The one that I go to yes does and i like that very much right arrows and all that and they've got you know big stripes on the floor telling you if you're going the wrong way down the down the aisle and it's masks and all of that and they've got the they've just been on it uh you know once they kind of realized what they had to do but i'm just hearing it's it seems to be a real mishmash you know some some grocery stores are on it some are not so i did want to hear from people on this simi at cknw.com and let me know how your grocery store approaches this. One of the many, I feel like, COVID-19 situations that we deal with, right? Like the license plate situation. Right. Oh, yeah, this one. So I was, speaking of the grocery store, I was actually at uh, the grocery store the other day. And as I pulled up, there was another vehicle who had pulled in just beside me and they had California license plates. So we recognize these people right away now, don't we? Yes. You see the California license plates and you go, huh, okay, I wonder what the story is there. So I was watching her get out of her vehicle and she put a Canadian flag in the back window what? as she was getting out of her car. And I thought, okay, there's a story here. Hold on a second. So I said to her, I said, excuse me, do you mind if I ask you a question? You know, I, I can't help but notice you have California license plates, but you've put a Canadian flag across the back window of your vehicle. I said, is that because you have gotten any grief or because you, you anticipate yeah. getting any problems? And she said, I haven't had any issues yet. But she said, I've heard the stories in the news of people getting hassled of people getting their car keyed. She said, I just didn't want to deal with any problems. So I want to let people know that I am a Canadian. I'm I'm here now. I'm a Canadian and I don't want any grief from anybody because my car has these California license plates. Okay. So that's exactly the kind of thing that Dr. Henry has been warning us about, right? Not to judge when it comes to the license plates uh, because you don't know if that person in there just drove there, decided to come home, you know, during the pandemic or whatever. You just don't know for sure. 
Oh, totally. And she had said, you know, the car has actually been here for a couple of years and, you know, kind of, okay, whatever, whatever. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's many circumstances where you could have people who just, you know, maybe they're Washington state residents and they've, they've decided to come home again because of this pandemic Yeah, from, you know, out of province from Alberta who have, you know, maybe they live close to the border and, you know, we've heard of that in Revelstoke, even people with Alberta plates um, who kind of reside part-time in BC, part-time in Alberta. It's funny because I think if you're like me, you've always noticed out-of-town license plates, especially when they're from somewhere like Florida. And you yes, go, well, that's a, a long you, way. You drive? Yeah, how did you drive all the way here? But I think now people are so hyper-vigilant of it that I hope it doesn't turn into this mob mentality where people's cars are getting keyed and they're getting yeah. you know, screamed at and yelled at. I mean, that's just that's, – that's not very Canadian of us. Our theme does seem to be people starting to lose patience, right, and being a little more rude yeah. than they used to be. We're going to talk more about that later. But, Nikki, thank you. Thanks, this is Mornings with Simi. I think the word of the day today is patience, as in we seem to be losing ours. So many stories of people being rude, people not following the rules, people just not caring. It's become a bit overwhelming, actually. I get emails about this every single day, but they seem to have ticked up a little bit in recent days. We're going to actually be speaking with the Kamloops Chamber of Commerce a little bit later. A couple of stories making headlines out of Kamloops over the weekend. A restaurant in particular, which just said, you know what, we're going to close our doors for four days over the long weekend just to give the employees a break from the rude customers that they have had to deal with, like 17-year-old you know, servers who are in tears because of how rude customers are. So what is happening? I, mean, I know there's a lot of frustration out there for sure. I've gotten some emails on this as well. If you want to send some to me, simi at cknw.com of examples of people kind of experiencing this as well. And I think, you know, sometimes people, they just boil over, like this case involving BC Ferries that Nikki Reitmeyer and I were talking about earlier. I mean, you're talking people waiting in line 8, 10, 12 hours to catch a ferry, but then watching people go by them and get on because those people are saying that they are residents, but they don't have to prove that they're residents. So are people exaggerating? Are they lying? Are they kind of skirting the rules? What's going on there? So it's obviously making for a lot of frustration. We wanted to talk to BC Ferries about it. They told us they're not available. Joining us now, though, is the representative from the BC Ferry and Marine Workers Union, Dan Kimmerly. Dan, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. Dan, are you hearing these types of stories, too, of frustrations from people waiting in line? (laughs) Oh, oh, yeah. Um, it, and and the, what's even more unfortunate is is you you don't know how many uh, residents are going to come to the to the ferry in the morning or in, at any time during the sailing. So you could have either sixty or or six hundred. So the people that are waiting in line, when they ask you know our our, our workers the question, you know, if they're going to get on the next ferry, we don't have they don't have the answer. You just don't know. Right. So there's no, so if you're a resident, you don't have to pre-book. You can just drive on? Uh, yeah. Okay. And nobody is checking either, are they, to make sure that people do have property there or are residents? No. Hmm. Does this system seem to be working for you, Dan? <laughs> um, for us, no. Not in, and and the, the, it, the, the employees are taking the abuse from it, from it significantly. People are starting to... to um, have a bit of a mob mentality and, and, and say things that you'd say in a mob that you wouldn't normally say face-to-face with someone. And so you feel the employees are getting the brunt of this behavior? Oh, yeah. We have people booking off. We have people that, that uh, just, I mean, you can imagine when you, you know you're going to come to work and, and uh, you're just going to, what you're, what you're expecting to get, right? Nothing but grief, essentially. Yeah. And, it, and it's not, it's not everybody, but... Uh, only takes a few, right? So what has BC Ferries told the employees, and how much longer is this going to continue? I mean, are they going to be changing the schedule anytime soon? Uh, we hope um, that it won't go on any longer at all, but um, as far as timelines, I, I, I can't answer I don't know. Right, but have you had a, have been having conversations with BC Ferries about this? Um, ab- absolutely. Um, but uh, their, uh, our response to them is, is uh, their response to us is um, just about the the order that that stays. So the the, the residents first policy orders. Right. So they don't sound like they're changing anything anytime soon. Washing their hands of the situation, I would say. Interesting. All right, Dan. Thank you.
Thank you. Dan Kimberly, representative for the BC Ferry and Marine Workers Union, saying that there's some employees who are, you know, frustrated. And how can you blame them, quite frankly, because they're bearing the brunt of customers' anger at not being able to get on board these ferries because of the residence first policy, plus because of the distancing, not as many sailings, all of that kind of stuff, just making for eight, 10, 12 hour waits for some people to get on board. And now they've encouraged people to go on a staycation, right? Stay in BC. Well, for many, that means going to the Sunshine Coast or going to the Gulf Islands, but impossible if you're having these kinds of waits at the ferries. What do you think they should do? You know, should they be loosening things up a little bit, adding more sailings, asking for proof of some kind of residency on those islands if you're going to be just driving on like that? You can email me with your thoughts on this, simi at cknw.com. You can call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. We will be talking more about that. Plus, we're going to talk more about just this idea of are people getting more frustrated? Are they becoming ruder, do you think, out there? This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Young people, though they're less likely to have a serious reaction to this disease, are highly likely to spread it to those who will have a bad reaction. It's one thing to be non or less vulnerable, but what that comes with responsibilities. That means protecting those who are more vulnerable. That is University of Ottawa epidemiology expert Dr. Rewat Dianandan on Global News. Now, the outbreak of COVID-19 that we have seen, been talking about in Kelowna, has brought forth a lot of questions and some backlash uh, against young people. Experts say those young people are getting kind of mixed messages about what they can do right now. But how do we get the message through to them about the social distancing, about how COVID-19 is a health concern for them? Well, joining us now to talk more about that is Stuart Points, the Associate Dean in the Faculty of Communication, Art and Technology at Simon Fraser University. Stuart, thank you very much for being here. Hello, thanks very much. Do you think the message is not getting through to the younger demographic? No, Simi, I, do. I, I actually think the message is getting through the younger, younger demographics. I think that the evidence is very strong that the vast majority of young people are not only doing their part, but they're helping their families, they're uh, making uh, very difficult decisions uh, about their lives. I think um, the small number of cases that have um, blown up and come to our attention, the incidents that have come to our attention, they really uh, occupy our thinking and our concerns right now. But I don't think they reflect what the vast majority of young people are doing in response to the crisis. Then where do you think it's just a small number then and we're getting it overblown? I, I, I think... I think it's slightly different. I think the issues that um, happen in situations like this are um, uh, young people are um, very often um, a, a place of concern. They are the uh, kind of panic is not unusual to see around young people's activity. And just as one example, the, the uh, over the weekend, the um, events in Brampton, Ontario, where there's a party of 200 young people broken up by the police, uh, charges are laid, etc. Those mm-hmm. stories have legs, and they travel around, and they give us the impression that young people are uh, violating the protocols of safety uh, across the country. When in fact, the, the the numbers on that are are not really large. But my larger point that I really uh, wanted to want to make around how young people are responding to the virus is that. Um, These kinds of uh, events, this public health crisis, it produces contradictory messages for young people. On the one hand, the evidence is really strong that young people are responding and doing their part. On the other hand, when um, uh, uh, unfortunate events arise, when parties happen, those hit the news, those images hit the news really quickly. And probably not surprisingly, because our 
uh, antenna are up. We're looking for problem situations. Where young people are concerned, though, the possibility of turning that into a kind of panic is really ripe, and it's because we tend to think young people are potentially irresponsible. The comments from the epidemiologists from U of O that were mentioned as we went into this story highlight that young people are receiving messages that they may not be that vulnerable, and so their their level of responsibility uh, uh, um, might be lessened as a consequence. These are all contradictory kinds of messages. And if you add to that the fact that young people are, as things are reopening, young people are being called out. They, we want to return to normal, businesses want to return to normal, and young people are a um, highly uh, targetable audience for that. And I think that puts pressure on them to uh, come back to life, as it were, and uh, come into the restaurants, come to fitness centers, come to bars. Those are contradictory messages versus the public health messages, so you're going to see some situations arise where but, problems are at stake. Right, but the numbers would also tell us, Stuart, it's not just anecdotal evidence here, that according to even Dr. Teresa Tam, 60% of our new cases in the last couple of weeks are in the 19 to 39 age group. We are seeing a, a huge number in the increase of cases in the younger demographic. So clearly something has changed. Right, and I, I think you could say that those uh, that data is not only true for Canada, but we're seeing similar kinds of patterns in uh, other countries. Here's my point to me, is that um, we're in the first uh, three weeks, certainly in British Columbia, of the reopening in phase three. Uh, there was an expectation all along that there would be a um, some kind of uh, case spike in that process. The actual jump in British Columbia has been extremely modest. Uh, we are at about 30 cases a day, and we'll see what that brings um, uh, after the weekend report. Um, that was expected. Uh, Bonnie Henry let us know that we had to keep our guard up, that, these, that the situation will change, and in the midst of that, we have to keep our guard up. My point is that in the process, young people become an easy target and are part of our anxiety. Um, they're also, I want to say, um, not only being called out by uh, businesses, etc., but they're receiving mixed messages from other places around us as well. If you look at the messages coming up from down south in the States, you see calls for young people in very tricky and dangerous uh, contexts to return to school, to come back out and show what's uh, and return to normal, as though young people are kind of like test cases uh, on the front lines of how to um, deal with the public health crisis. That seems to me to be the kind of contradictory message that settles in for young people but, and, 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 and produces incidents like we've seen. But we the could question, make that argument, Stuart, for every generation. We could say parents are getting mixed messages about what to do with their children. We could say that you know all of us are getting mixed messages about going to fitness centers and going out. That's not a, a young actually, people's that's thing. True, that's though. all, that's all generations. That's not true, though, Simi, because whilst we may be getting uh, messages to come out to bars, restaurants, uh, fitness centers, etc., the numbers of people in older generations, if I may say, including myself, that are the um, ideal target for those messages, it's just not the same. It's young people in their 20s and 30s, particularly people in their 20s, who get called out to those kinds of events. And, 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 and I think we can all agree that Kelowna uh, and the Okanagan might be um, an ideal case for that. My point is not that young people don't have responsibilities, have tremendous responsibilities exactly. in this moment. That's true. And many young, most young people are doing extremely good at that. My point is that let's not scapegoat just as Bonnie Henry has asked us not to do because that produces a whole set of other tensions that don't necessarily help us solve or respond to the crisis that we're facing. All right, Stuart, thanks so much for your time on this. Hey, thanks. Take care. All right, so we were just uh, talking to SFU professor Stuart Points there who kind of feels that the younger generation is being unfairly singled out in these latest COVID-19 outbreaks. And he says they're getting mixed messages that on the one hand, you know, we're being told it's okay to go out and eat and it's okay to go back to the gym. And on the other, you know, people are saying, look at these outbreaks of cases and young people are getting together and they shouldn't be doing that. You know, I don't buy that though, because personally, I feel like people on the whole 
are smart enough to figure out what's really going on here that yes, if the gyms are open, it doesn't mean that you can all just go back and crowd in there. Yes, restaurants are open doesn't mean that you should be pushing your tables together uh, and, you know, not wearing masks when you have the opportunity to do so. And honestly, I don't think any generation deserves a pass here. Not the young generation, not the middle-aged generation, certainly not the older generation either. Either we are all to blame or no one is to blame. And quite frankly, uh, I think we're kind of all to blame here. Earlier, I was talking about a friend of mine who lives in White Rock, and she is horrified, and she's a senior, and she is horrified that nobody is following social distancing or mask wearing or anything like that at what used to be her grocery store. It is not anymore after what she has seen there. And she has tried to talk to them about it, and she has sent emails, and she has phoned head office, and they've all you know kind of washed their hands of it and told her, well, it's up to the individual stores. And she said she's also just horrified in that nobody seems to be taking personal responsibility here. And overwhelmingly, what she sees is seniors doing this. And we are talking about Wyrock here, right? A lot of older people who live there. And so she's horrified by her generation. So I don't think it matters what generation it is. On the whole, we have to ask the question, are we all doing enough that we can be to follow the rules? No excuses, no, oh, mixed messages, no, none of that. You're adults. You can figure this out, right? You can. I've seen people consult their phones 10 ways to Sunday to try to figure out where the best place is to go and you know get something to eat or find the best rating for something. You, you can do all that information. You can also find out the right way to follow the rules and make sure that you follow through with them. Later today, we're going to be getting the updates once again uh, for BC, the COVID-19 numbers. We haven't had any on the weekend. We were averaging last week about 30 a day, clearly an increase, but we've seen a lot more lack of social distancing going on out there. And you know what else we've seen out there? And this is the thing that concerns me, a little more rudeness going on, I think. A lot more impatience uh, that we have seen. And I got a couple emails on this topic. Actually, I talked about losing patience. Bob wrote me to say, my daughter works in a large bookstore and almost daily, Bob says, there's a customer having a meltdown about something. Unfortunately, he says, I think with the current heat wave, patience will be in short supply. So do you get that sense out there as well of people losing patience, people not being as polite as they used to be? I mean, that's I get that sense out there for sure. We were talking about BC Ferries earlier. There's another problem, right? People not following the rules. Brian wrote to say about that, you know, BC Ferries should just drop the resident priority, he said. People choose to live in areas that require a ferry, Brian says. What if highways did the same thing? Residents get lane travel priority? He said, no, first come, first serve, or reservations are the only fair answer, Brian says. Now, again, your thoughts on this are welcome. Send me at cknw.com. You can also call our buzz line 604-331-2899. But we're talking about patience, people losing it out there, and whether or not, I don't think you can single out a generation when it comes to why are we seeing an increase in numbers. We have all played a part in not, you know, keeping these numbers down. Maybe this time, yes, it's being a little bit more contagious among younger people, but hey, everybody of all ages have been, you know, doing this. Uh, I got Elaine here who wrote me to say, just returned from Kelowna, she says, where it was obvious not much distancing was occurring among different families on the beach, she said. We had to drive pretty far out to get to what we considered to be a safe situation. Also, she said, I noticed that biking clubs are biking in large groups, not distancing is all. You can't tell me they're all in each other's bubbles. She said, it makes me upset because I haven't been able to play with or hold my grandson, who I haven't been able to be with since March. He was two and a half. Now he's three, Elaine said. I've literally seen him twice, masks on. I believe many people think the threat is over. Elaine, I think you're right about that. And see, there perhaps lies where our frustration is. People like Elaine, who have very carefully followed the rules and they're trying to be good about this and they want to make sure people stay safe and then they see so many people kind of not doing the same. And then you get a lot of frustration out there. This is Mornings with Simi. 99% of our customers have been amazing. But those ones that feel licensed to abuse a 17-year-old girl at the till just doing her job, that's, that's not okay. 
That is a Kamloops restaurant owner. He's been speaking out because he has found staff repeatedly in tears because of customers berating them for trying to enforce the COVID-19 health order and rules. Now, bad behavior happens all the time, right? But it feels like lately the pandemic and the health orders around there have given people some kind of an opportunity to vent their negativity. Maybe it's their stress, their anxiety that they're feeling over the situation. I don't know. But it ends up usually, of course, being targeted at the people who least deserve it. So joining us now to talk more about this is Acacia Pangolinen, who's the executive director of the Kamloops Chamber of Commerce. Acacia, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Are you hearing from businesses that have this problem? Absolutely. Um, We've been hearing about it for a couple of weeks now, um, and we're hearing from all different sectors. Uh, Right now, it's mostly geared around our restaurants and retail stores, um, but we're hearing everything from some business owners are experiencing fantastic customers, people who are empathetic and they follow the rules, but we're also experiencing pretty intense situations where um, a lot of negative energy is, uh, you know, being given Mm -hmm. to frontline workers. Boy, that must be tough too, because if if you're hearing from more than one restaurant, this seems to be a problem. Definitely. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty tough. And I think you, you really hit the nail on the head there when you were talking about stress and anxiety um, from the, the COVID situation really pent up. Um, I think that's what we're seeing. I think people were um, kind of tired of lockdown and ready to resume what a new normal life could look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unfortunately, there are some people who are not moving forward with patience and empathy. Um, and it's creating some pretty intense situations. How are businesses dealing with that? Uh, in Kamloops, we've actually have a number of businesses who've now put up signage saying that, you know, we you have to treat our employees with respect. We have to do right by them and create a safe environment. And so, if you aren't ready to adhere to that, you'll be asked to leave. Um, so it's a turn, getting to the point where businesses are turning away customers, um, you know, which is tough right now in COVID as people are on navigating this road to recovery. Um, but they just won't stand for mistreatment of their employees. Right. Well, that is rough for businesses because, yeah, they're desperate to get the business back, right? They want customers there, but uh, you got to protect your employees. Absolutely. Especially when you look at restaurants who are, you know, experiencing heavy, tightened protocols with less capacity, less people in. Um, so, you know, they're really trying to make it so that they can become a profitable company at the end of this. So to have to turn people away, it's, it's really difficult. Is it better, I guess, Acacia, if more businesses kind of sign on to this? Because that way for those particular customers, it doesn't matter where they go. They're going to get the same message. Um, Yeah, I think so. I think that uh, part of the issue is that there's a a bit of an inconsistency because some restaurants are following, um, you know, some of the protocols and some are taking it to a whole other level to protect their community safety. And so I think if more of our business communities is more vocal about how they have to do right by their employees, I think that sends a message to our consumers that, yes, we're, you know, we're all learning this together, but we're asking you to move forward with patience and kindness. And how has the return to businesses and businesses being open been going? Are customers going back out to eat and do all that kind of stuff? Oh, absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, right when the reopening happened, we really had to build up public confidence. And so our business community really took to communicating out the safety protocols that they've put in place. Um, and so we're starting to see a lot more people, um, even you know, fellow British Columbians coming to Kamloops to explore everything that we have to offer. Um, but having said that, there is also a, a big population um, in BC that is not quite ready to go out there yet. So um, you know, they're going to online orders or curbside pickup, which is you know been a great opportunity for businesses to pivot to. Yeah, how is the tourism issue in Kamloops? We've heard an awful lot about what's going on in Kelowna, but are you getting lots of tourists up there in Kamloops? We are getting tourists up here in Kamloops. Our hoteliers have been saying they're seeing a steady increase in occupancy, Um, but there's lots of outdoor activities surrounding Kamloops, and um, we don't have like a centralized beach where uh, maybe a lot of people would want to gather to, so we're lucky that way. All right, so then what would your message be, Acacia, to people who, as you said, especially when it's nice out, right, they want to go outside, they they don't want to think about all the problems in the world? 
So uh, the Kamloops Chamber actually released a video with three tips for people to help businesses on a healthy road to recovery. Number one, follow the protocols that are in place by the businesses. They're put there with community safety in mind. Number two, wear a mask. It's not about your comfortability, but it's about everybody else. And number three, choose patience and kindness. Everyone has collectively gone through a very stressful time, and so we're all trying to navigate what this new world looks like. So kindness and patience is the best way to move forward, in in my opinion. No, I agree with you. I just wish more people would get that message through to them. Uh, Acacia, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That is Acacia Pangolinen, who is the executive director of the Kamloops Chamber of Commerce. Uh, They've had a challenge there, some businesses in Kamloops, in particular, a couple of restaurants, one in particular where the owner was speaking out, saying that he's just had enough. He'd found staff in tears too many times because customers, you know, berating staff members just because they're following along with the COVID-19 rules. I mean, it's inexcusable that you would take that out on just an innocent staff member. We are all feeling that stress and anxiety together. So this particular restaurant owner said he's had enough. In fact, over the long weekend, he said he's he's going to give them a four-day weekend, uh, close the restaurant because he said he just his staff needs a break. And so they're also putting up signage outside the restaurant saying, listen, we follow the rules. And if you don't like that, then please don't come in because he said they just, he has to protect his staff at all costs. This is Mornings with Simi. Hi, welcome back. Certainly glad you could join me today. You know, we get hundreds and hundreds of letters here concerning the joy of painting. And one of the things that we hear over and over again is is people feel intimidated or they're a little nervous about putting the first stroke on canvas. So I thought we'd devote this entire show today to teaching you how to just sort of loosen up and, and take life easy and enjoy painting. Oh, man, I feel better already just hearing that. That is the unmistakable voice of Bob Ross. For 31 seasons, he hosted the TV show, The Joy of Painting. And don't you just feel your anxiety levels dropping when you could hear him, you know, talking and watch him just paint away? Oh, this is my favorite story of the day. Now, he did pass away in 1995, but the show has taken on a new life. Millions of people watch episodes on YouTube. Uh, It was on Netflix there for a while too. So you've got an entirely new generation appreciating his genius. But when you think about it, I read an article about this last year. There are no Bob Ross paintings out there on the market for sale, even though he must have finished thousands of them during his lifetime. In fact, they are very tightly guarded just by his estate which is why I was astounded to hear that dozens of Bob Ross original paintings are actually going to be on display in Penticton this year. We wanted to find out how they managed to pull this off. So Paul Crawford joins us now, the curator at the Penticton Art Gallery. Hi, Paul. Hello, and good morning. Good morning. How did you do this? Well, I too saw that uh, documentary on solving the mystery of the Bob Ross paintings where they all went to. Yeah. you know, was fascinated for years about his life and his career, and certainly, <clears throat> excuse me, where I was, where I am today, certainly owes itself in part to Bob Ross inspiring me as a child. And uh, and I, after seeing that documentary, I phoned up Bob Ross Incorporated and said, "Hey, what's the chances of us doing an exhibition here in Penticton?" And uh, at that point, they were just doing their first show, <clears throat> excuse me, at the at the Franklin Art Center in Virginia. And they said, well, based on the success and the interest there, we'd love to explore other opportunities. And over the next six months, we sort of ironed out the the details. And uh, originally, the show was supposed to open in March here. Um, and the week that COVID sort of took off, it, uh, we had to shutter up the gallery. And four months later, we were able to open the show again. And uh, July the 4th seemed to be the, the appropriate day. And without even knowing that, it happened to be actually the 25th anniversary of Bob Ross's passing. So um, it's just been a real gift for us and uh, been an incredible journey. Okay, so how long will you have this exhibition going for? Uh, the show's going to continue here till uh, Sunday, September the 13th. And that last weekend, we'll do a, we'll have extended hours, and we'll uh, we'll do a whole sort of Bob Ross uh, celebration and symposium. And uh, depending how things go out in the world, we're hoping to do public talks on Bob and have people debate the merits of his work and high art and low art and what belongs it. in museums and everything. I love this, but how do how do people get in to see the show? Because like you obviously still are social distancing, and we I'm are. and I'm thinking, geez, I'd love to go to Penticton to see this. But how are you making that happen? 
So we've extended our hours. We're open seven days a week, and uh, we're allowing 13 people in the gal in the main gallery at any one time. And uh, typically, we're getting about 200 people through the gallery a day at the moment. Um, and we haven't left anybody waiting on the street at the end of the day. So um, we're getting everyone through that we can, and we'll accommodate everybody to the best of our ability. And it's been remarkable to see the reactions people have had coming into the show, and I think it's uh, the perfect antidote for everything that's going on in the world every day. And uh, certainly, I think people are really really benefiting from it. Oh, I agree. Uh, so how did you get, did you get to decide which paintings? D- is there a preference or does the trust just send you the exhibit? No. So we did choose the paintings. Um, it was a long kind of process because in that time that we started the conversation, I think we were like the third person to phone up to be interested. Uh, dozens of other people also got the same idea of as I did. And so there was a lot of demand, but for every episode, he did three paintings. He did one as, um, as sort of a, as a guide by which it was off camera that he would use to sort of uh, use the reference painting. And then he would do the one that he would do on the episode. And he did a third version of the same painting, which they would use for close-ups and detail shots if they missed something wow. or, and uh, photograph for all the books that came out uh, in conjunction with every episode as well. So there's a lot of work out there. Um, but that being said, you know, our list got narrower and narrower that we could choose from. But what the hope was to represent one painting from each thir- of the 31 seasons. Uh, we didn't quite do that, but we do have 32 paintings here. And uh, we've got the second painting from season one and the very last painting he did on season 31. And that painting's the actual painting he did on, epi- on the episode. Wow. The rest of them are all from the book. Out, from the book. So you got a lot of happy little trees there. We got a lot of happy little trees. We got some ocean paintings. I really tried to choose the full range of work that he did. Um, so yeah, we have a little bit of the ocean. We got trees. We got mountains. We got as much Bob Ross as you could possibly handle. <laughs> Are you sure about that? Because I think people. Well, can I don't know. You can go bit. around again. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. You know what is it about Bob Ross, Paul? Do you think that appeals to people? Yeah, it's soothing, true. But you talked about art, people, what people consider art, um, and yet this has really come around, hasn't it? It is. You know, I, was, I grew up in Vancouver myself, and I remember in grade five, we had a local artist, Daniel Lazard, come in and do a plein air painting exercise for us in grade five. And that blew me away that a guy in half an hour could create a landscape, totally imagined, but something I could understand right before my eyes. And then uh, growing up in Vancouver that time, KCTS 9 from, I think, Bellingham yes. broadcast across the line there. And we only had four choices of TV channels back then. And, <laughs> and you know, inevitably you would get stuck on Bob Ross. And I don't know what it is, but he planted a seed in my brain early on. And I'm not an artist myself. I don't paint. But just the magic of being able to do that uh, stuck with me. And it just is one of those things that I think gently guided me to where I am today. And I'm thrilled to be able to to share his work and enter into these conversations. Because as Bob Ross says, there's no wrong answers. There's no mistakes. Oh, I love that. That's so great. Paul, do you have a website that people can check out? Yeah, it's uh, com. Our hours, everything's on there. And uh, yeah, please come and check us out. Love it. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate your support and interest. We love it. That's a Penticton Art Gallery. They've got the largest exhibit of Bob Ross paintings that you can see anywhere in Canada. So check it out. This is Mornings with Simi. And you probably heard about this next story over the weekend because, boy, did it ever pull on the heartstrings of so many people out there. So on Friday, Mara Soriano had her backpack stolen. But it's not the iPad that was inside of that backpack that she so desperately wants back. No, she is pleading for thieves to actually return the custom-made teddy bear inside that backpack. Why? Because that teddy bear was fitted with a voice recording from her mother, who died of cancer last year. And over the weekend, this story has just gone viral with so many people, including a couple of celebrities like Ryan Reynolds pitching in to try to find this teddy bear. So Mara Soriano joins us now. Good morning, Mara. Hi, good morning. Any luck with this? Have you heard anything at all? Well, because of this amazing outreach from all of you guys, we've been able to get so many tips and leads on possibly where the suspect could have fled and possible sightings of the bear, and we've been following up on everything. 
Um, we've been searching dumpsters in the area, checking alleyways, checking bushes, because a lot of people have been telling me about their similar experiences and how the thief usually just takes what's expensive, like the iPad or the right. Nintendo Switch. And hopefully the bear doesn't mean anything to him and he just threw it away somewhere. But so far, nothing yet. But the search will continue today. I'm going to check the other side of Vancouver. Over the weekend, it's just been the West End. But right. over the week, I think I'm going to try around like the East Hastings area where this kind of stuff usually ends up. Okay, what so, happened though? How did this get stolen? So my fiance and I were actually moving into a new apartment into the West End, and we had a couple of friends volunteer to help us. Uh, we hired a U-Haul with all of our stuff, but and a friend um, volunteered to just bike over and meet us here. Mm-hmm. And pretty much as soon as we had pulled in with the U-Haul, he called us and said that he had got hit by a van. He was biking straight on a bike lane, and the van made an abrupt right lane change and just hit him head on, so or straight on. So I immediately started panicking. I felt a little bit responsible for it because yeah. he was on his way to help us. So, of course, I just dropped everything immediately right next to the U-Haul. Um, I ran into an Evo, a car share, and I drove to him. And because we had to get the U-Haul back in a certain amount of time, my fiancé just started unloading everything from the back of the truck and didn't even realize that I had left the backpack in front of it. But it took all of 10 minutes for this thief to spot it, looked around, made sure that no one was looking, and he swiped it and just ran off with it. All right. Do you have any witnesses, like anybody see which direction that person went in or anything like that? Unfortunately, not any people saw him, but thankfully we have a lot of camera footage from nearby restaurants oh. and shops who have been so cooperative. So we've kind of tracked down the directions that he's been going in like right after the theft was happening. So we've been searching those alleyways. And the iPad that was stolen actually pinged last night. Um, for some reason, it was delayed. But on Friday, we know that the iPad was around the Hastings area. Okay. And we got a lead saying that the teddy bear, like somebody had seen a teddy bear being kicked into an empty parking lot in the Gastown area. So we're going to be concentrating our search there today. Okay, that sounds like a plan. Good. I I'm, yeah. Fingers crossed that you find this. Uh, what did you think when you saw like Ryan Reynolds saying $5,000 reward to the return for the return of Mara's teddy bear? Oh, man, I never in a million years thought that this would reach someone like him. And for him to be so kind and generous to offer a cash reward is everything to me and my family. I like I'm not on Twitter much. And my friend told me about it. And as soon as I found out that it was real, I just started sobbing. And ever since then, it's just not snowballed. It's avalanched into this outpouring of kindness and generosity and heartwarming words from everyone. And I have people volunteering to check Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace, which is so great because I haven't had time to sit down and breathe. I've been living in boxes for the past two days. I haven't even unpacked my apartment yet because I've just been out scouring the streets. I feel like, Mara, this is kind of the the helpful story, the good story that people need. They want to be able to help because they, they need to do something good right now. Like maybe that's one of the reasons why it's resonating with people. I think so too. And honestly, it's just been such a positive light during such a dark time, I think. Like, I can't believe that something so positive would come from something so negative. And I so wish I could tell my mom about it. Like, I think she would just love it. Like, if she knew that the whole world was rooting for us, I don't know. Like, she would just cry. Oh, that that message must mean so much to you. Was it anything special that your mom had said to you? Is it something you got her to record before she passed away? Oh, I didn't even ask her to do it. She had just done it on her own accord. And it is so special to me just hearing the recording. It said, I love you. I'm proud of you. And I will always be with you. And I'm the oldest of three kids. So it was hard for me to get one-on-one time with her. So having something specifically just for me meant everything. And also, I'm the only person in my family in Vancouver. So I had that bear on my desk. I saw it every day. It was my reminder of home, of my family. And now I don't have it. And I just want it back. Okay. Well, we are all going to do our best to try to get that back for you. Samara, how can people help out? Can they show up and like describe the bear to us? And and where are you going to be looking today so people can maybe help you out? 
So we're going to definitely be concentrating the search in that kind of Hastings Abbott area like near Richards and Pender. The police have all the information that they need, and they've also sent officers out, which is amazing. The VPD have been so unbelievably cooperative and quick to help, and that's just so great. Um, if anybody has any tips, please email me at findmamabearyvr at gmail.com. That's findmama, M-A-M-A, bear, Y-V-R, at gmail.com. And if anything, if you don't want to talk to anyone, just drop it off at a police station or give it to someone trustworthy or return it to the Build-A-Bear store in Burnaby, anything like that. Okay, Mara, we will get the word out there. Listen, thank you so much and fingers crossed for you today, okay? Thank you so, so much for getting the word out. We so appreciate it. Whatever we can do. Thanks, Mara. That is Mara Soriano. Uh, It is Mara's custom-made teddy bear with the voice recording from her mom in it, who passed away last year from cancer, that everybody is looking for. Ryan Reynolds has offered a $5,000 reward for the return of the spare. Uh, You heard Mara there. They are going to be looking everywhere today. And we will, of course, keep you posted about how that search goes.